Father, um, we all are very good at seeing the blindfolds that other people wear, and we are blindfolded to the blindfolds that we wear and that we clutch to our eyes. Uh, Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would do a gentle but wonderful and deep work in our lives today as we read your word. We ask, Father, that you do not help us to see the blindfolds that others wear, but that you help us to see the blindfolds that we keep putting on or that we hold on. We ask, Father, that you would do this work, that we would see our blindfolds. Father, all this we ask in the name of Jesus, your Son and our Savior. Amen. Please be seated. Just uh, recently in the same week, I had two remarkable conversations in uh, different coffee shops. I won't keep advertising the coffee shops that they both were. Uh, Those of you who are regulars know what they probably were. Uh, The first one happened just a few weeks ago. I was talking to a a young man, and uh, the conversation, I've had lots of conversations with him, and the conversation took a very sudden and surprising turn. He said to me, uh, George, you know, I've been puzzled about this. I have been raised by very, very secular parents who wanted nothing to do with religion or spirituality. Uh, As I was growing up as a child and as a teenager and as a young adult when I still lived in my house, my parents once never took me to a church or a mosque or a synagogue or a temple, never once. I've had a completely and utterly secular education where I wasn't taught anything about God at school, but I was taught ethics. Yet as far back as I can remember, I have prayed. And I pray virtually every day right now. And I don't really understand why. Isn't that a remarkable conversation? I mean, just brothers and sisters, those of you who are here are Christians, one of the great mistakes that we make when we talk to our non-Christian friends is to presume that they never pray. In fact, it might very well be that one of the things that will shock us is that many Christians live prayerless lives. And we might discover, if we actually had an honest conversation, that our non-Christian friends pray more than we do. And, um, and so um, the, the text that we're going to look at in a moment actually talks a little bit about how I tried to answer the question. It's a very important text, actually, to help us to understand this phenomenon as to why it would be that somebody in a completely secular environment, in a, in a very, very secular culture, would pray every day and have a basic belief that there must be a God that does exist. Uh, this particular person also actually lives without hope, which is a very, very interesting mixture of things. Um, shortly after this conversation, in the same week, uh, I had a conversation with a young woman that went in a very different way. Uh, I've, those of you who've uh, taken the bulletins, every week in the bulletin I have a blog, and uh, it, it's in the bulletin and then it's on, online on, on Monday. And the opening quote, I mean, it might look a bit shocking, I realize I should have put a question mark after it afterwards, but this is uh, pretty almost exactly word for word an assertion that came to me in a different conversation later in the week with a different person. And she said this repeatedly, and this is what she said to me, Christianity believes it is exceptional. But every religion believes it is exceptional. There have been at least 10,000 religions and 100,000 gods. There were religions that existed before Christianity that do not exist today. In 4,000 years' time, Christianity will not exist, and there will be other religions. These are just facts that you have to accept. 
and you can look at the blog. Uh, in, I, I just the, the scripture text touches on this as well, by the way, just slightly. You can look at the blog yourself later on at your leisure, where if my sermon gets very boring, uh, you can look at it yourself and, and see how I sort of responded to that. But uh, two very, very different conversations. The second one would be a person who clearly identifies themselves as an atheist. The, the first one is, I don't know how, uh, how he would identify himself. The scripture text addresses both of these issues, but the first one in particular. So it would be a great help to me if you open your Bibles and turn to the text that Anya read just a few moments ago, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7. And uh, actually, I'm just going to read uh, the very last sentence of uh, verse 6, uh, because uh, it's it sort of, it's part of the argument. Actually, one of the things, another bit of a time out here, for those of you who, uh, who call this your church home, one of the things you can, I really, 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 really desperately need your prayers every week. Um, one of the hard parts about trying to preach through Second Corinthians, the first seven chapters, is it's a, it's a very, very subtle uh, but sustained argument where things keep looping back. And it's it's hard to know a lot of what it's talked about here is talked about in chapter 4 and 5 and 6. And it's just really hard to somehow figure out how to preach it. I really, really value your prayers that as I'm listening to the Bible, I know how to sort of bring you into the argument without having to listen to all of the seven chapters. So please pray for me. Anyway, if we just, we're going to look at, so remember, so this, this, this uh, young man and why is it that I, I've prayed and I still pray, I prayed today, and I never had any religious background or upbringing. So we'll begin at just the last sentence of verse 6. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And then it goes on. Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory." It's a big chunk of scripture. It's, you know, said 7 to 11, so that's uh, five verses. But here's the, the big idea uh, with this text. It's Paul using a different set of images to try to communicate a very fundamental Christian truth. It's, uh, it's in virtually all of his letters. It's what Jesus was trying to communicate. It's a constant New Testament lesson. It's a, it's a lesson that goes right back to what we call the Old Testament and our Jewish friends call the Tanakh. And it's this. And I'm sorry I don't have these, uh, this, this point up on a slide, uh, but this is it. If all I have are rules and rituals to follow, I will die a failure. If all I have are rules and rituals to follow, I will die a failure. If all I have are rules and rituals to follow, I will die a failure. One of the points I was going to try to make, and you can see it in my blog, to the to the the woman who said that there's ten thousand religions, a hundred thousand gods, is I I, tr- I tried to communicate that if it it might be that they're not all the same, and I would suggest that um, 
there are several very, very distinctive things about the Christian way and about what Jesus taught. That, in a sense, if there are 10,000, I don't know if there, are t- if there have been 10,000, but 9,999 9, share one common feature. And that common feature is that whether it's come from a, a seer, from a prophetic vision, whether they believe it's come directly from the mind or mouth of God or word of God, they all teach that there's rules and rituals to follow. And if you're successful at following the rules and the rituals, you will be accepted by God. Now, granted, the 9,999, they all disagree on lots of things. Um, you know, uh, the rules and the rituals that you have to follow if you follow Muhammad are going to be very different than the rules and the rituals you have to follow if you're listening to Buddha or to Krishna. Uh, and the consequence for failing to follow the rules and the rituals are going to be very different if you're following Muhammad than if you're following Buddha uh, or Krishna. With Buddha and Krishna, you get, you get another kick at the can, so to speak. You come back and you keep doing it. But it's all a very, very common, uh, common teaching that there are rules, there are rituals, uh, some of it might involve going to a temple in, in Paul's time in Corinth. Uh, you know, the, the men would have said, uh, so long, dear, I'm going to the temple to worship. And it would have meant that they were going to have sex with a temple prostitute. Uh, you know, now it might be yoga. In other places, it might be a killing an animal or a sacrifice. It might be learning how to say uh, a certain type of prayer or following a practice. But it's a very, very common thing, I would suggest, for all 9,999 religions and spiritualities and systems of thought, that there are rules and there are rituals, you follow them and God accepts you. And the message of Jesus and the New Testament message is the message of Jesus, is that no, no human being will ever follow the rules and the rituals sufficiently. And if your hope is following the rules and the rituals, you will die. In fact, if you, you go back and you read Romans, the book of Romans, and, and just uh, the, the most scholars think that the letter that Paul wrote after this was the book of Romans. And if you go back and you read chapter 2 of Romans, you, one of the things that Paul does in an argument is to say, in a sense, that God is completely and utterly fair. Even if you don't believe or know in his rules and, and, and rituals that he's revealed in the Tanakh, if you make your own, just pick your own rules and, and rituals. You can pick whatever rules or rituals you want and then just measure your life by your own rules or rituals. You won't even keep them. Very, very common thing in movies. Uh, you know, I have these rules and I'm going to break them or they break them and, and things happen. And, and so what Paul is saying here in verses 7 to 11 is that if all I have are rules and rituals to follow, I will die a failure. In this particular context, he's saying he's referring to a story that goes in Exodus chapter 32, 33, and 34, where God uh, appears to Moses. Moses goes up in a mountain. God appears uh, to Moses. Of course, God, Moses can't see him directly, but God, Moses is in God's presence, and God himself writes on tablets of stone what we now know of as the Ten Commandments, the Ten Instructions, the Ten Words. Uh, that are be, to be the basis about how you live. And when Moses comes down from the mountain, because he's been in the presence of God, um, his face is bright, like the brightest spotlight. And uh, and the people of Israel can't bear to look at it, so they his face, so he, he puts a cover on it, so it doesn't frighten them. And that's the background. But it, you know, if if you if you understand that it's that if you follow if you believe that following rules and rituals will make you right with God, if that's what your religion is, 
you should know that you will die a failure. If you keep that perspective, listen again to verses verses 7 to 11. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, you see, that's what it is. There are words carved in letters of stone, but it ends up just bringing you death because you can't keep them. I can't keep them. I'm not just saying you. Ha, 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 you can't keep them. I do. No, no, no. I have three fingers pointing back. Uh, I'm more than you. I'm probably worse at keeping the rules than than many of you who are here. Um, The ministry of death, that's what it ends up being if you just have rules and rituals. Carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Listen again to this. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, because you see, if in fact God reveals perfect rules and we can't keep the rules, then that actually is a a word against us. It's a type of condemnation of us. Um, The ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. And and just so you know, every time you see the word righteousness, uh, or most of the times you see the word righteousness, understand that it means right standing, making it right. What makes you right with God, right? The image is, um, I don't know, maybe, you, you know, you work in a Starbucks or something like that and, and, uh, and, uh, and, and, a, and a customer's complaining and they, they're complaining that the, the, you know, I don't know, that the, the coffee's not right, the bill's wrong, etc., etc. What is it that they do, whether it's them or the manager? They come to make it right. They come to make it right. And, and they, they want to make it right so that there's a, t- a sense of satisfaction, that there's a sense of restoration of justice and wholeness, and it usually means making it right is that the, is that the, the restaurant pays. They say, uh, here, we'll give it exactly the way you want. We'll take it all back. In fact, we'll make it free for you. We'll, we'll make it free. Because why? We want to make it right. And that image of making it right is what the word righteousness in English, that, that's, it's an English translation of a Greek word. That's what it's trying to communicate, that There's going to be a ministry from God that makes it right with him. Uh, Go back to verse 10. In this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will that which is permanent have glory. I'll talk about that in a moment. But, But here we can see that there's this basic idea that if all I have are rules and rituals to follow, I will die a failure, and we just cannot literally keep the rules. In fact, in the same conversation with the young man who was telling me about prayer, um, I, I, I knew that he liked watching movies. So I said to him, because I was trying to explain how Christians understand this issue, why it is that Christians would understand or should understand that people pray naturally. And I said, if you saw a movie, science fiction or a fantasy movie, but if you saw a movie, and in the movie you come to a place where everything is perfect, the people are perfect, they follow all of the rules, everything is perfect, wouldn't you know that as the movie progresses that there's evil behind it, that it's an illusion? And he said, yes. That's always what it means in Hollywood where you see something perfect. It always means there's evil and that there's control. I, I said one of the, and this would be another thing to the, 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 the woman about the 10,000 religions, the second thing which is very distinctive in the Christian faith is the doctrine of the fall. That the idea that God created all things good and that the creator who created all things good created human beings in a very special place to tend the garden, to in a sense be a, um, 
a sub-creator under God and to manage God's creation, almost like a type of priest and priestess where we care for the earth and we at the same time, in a sense, offer the earth up to God under his direction. And human beings alone, out of all the created order, are made in the image of God. Uh, The Greek word translating is icon, E-I-K-O-N. And uh, human beings alone are made in the icon of God. And when human beings in Genesis 3 decided that they did not want to be sub-creators but wanted to be equal with God or superior to God, what happened is that something within us was bent and twisted. And uh, because you can never leave yourself to fix yourself, that which is now bent and twisted can't be unbent and untwisted because it'd be a bent and twisted being trying to unbend and untwist a twisted being, and we only bend and twist it more. And so when we rebelled against God because we wanted to be like God ourselves, it isn't that God erased the image and likeness in us and removed it. It stays in us, but we're now bent. We're now twisted. And, um, and that's why it is that every day, if we woke up on Monday and the newspaper said there's been no, no wars, no robberies, nothing bad happened in the entire world, we know we wouldn't believe it. Nobody in the city would believe it. Even the hardened atheist, even the most unbelievably optimistic, Rousseau-following, sorry, bit of an academic reference, person who teaches in the education faculty that somehow often teaches that human beings are inherently good, nobody would believe it. Right? What, nothing bad happened? Like nothing at all? And even if we thought that nothing bad happened, we'd know in our thoughts that bad things were going on in our thoughts. Why? Because human beings are bent. They're twisted. We're made in the image of God. We were made, in a sense, in the image of a creator, but we are bent and we are twisted. It's another thing which is unique to to what Jesus taught, what the Bible teaches. So human beings are made in God's image, and we're bent and we're twisted. It explains two things. It explains why when I say, and when Paul is saying here, that if God gives us perfect laws, we won't keep them. All it will do is give us reason to understand that God has a very valid reason to not allow us into his heaven, in the new heaven and the new earth. At the same time, the fact that every human being is made in God's image, it talks, it explains very powerfully why it is that there have been 10,000 religions. I mean, I didn't put it in my blog, but one of the things I would have said to my Dawkins-loving friend with the 10,000 religion quote is, you know, atheism has to account for why there's 10,000 religions. And you know what? Freud's explanation doesn't work. Freubach's explanation doesn't work. Marx's explanation doesn't work. Uh, You know, they don't work. And you have to account for that. But, you know, for us as Christians, if in fact every human being has been made in the image and the icon of God and we have a creator, there is something in every human being, because we're made in the image of God, that cries out and longs for and desires that creator in whom, whose, in whose image we have been made. 
And the fact that we can never stop being creatures, as much as we might think that we're gods and our technology and our techniques can make us like God and our politics can make us like God, if we just follow Marxism, if we just follow some utopia, that we will be like gods, we will manage the means of production, we will manage the created order, we will be perfect. <laughs> that None of those things work, but the creation itself, we're creatures in a created order that regularly reminds us that there's a creator, even if we suppress it. And there is something in every human being that longs to once again be aligned with that with whom we are made in, in whom we are made in his image, the true and living God, the creator and sustainer of all things. Um, so the question is, okay, George, one, whoa, whoa, okay, George. Does that mean, if I'm just reading this all right, does this mean that God did something on purpose to condemn us? Does this mean that God did something that failed? Like, how does that fit, George? How, how would it fit that this, if God does all these things and it just condemns us and, and it, like, like, in fact, actually this, this, I, I explained some of these things to the, to the young man who first asked me this question about prayer. And his response was, because he acknowledged that um, if we saw a movie with utopia, we'd know there was evil behind it. And he'd say, there's no hope then. And given that, in fact, he has always struggled with the fact that there's no hope, he said, now I know there's no hope. I'm really good at cheering people up. And, and then I said, but that's why we need grace. That's why we need grace. I'm going to read verses 7 to 11 again, but take in mind a different type of image. It wasn't as if God said, well, I'm going to try this plan with Moses. I sure hope it works. And then after a period of time, God went, oh, dang, it didn't work. What on earth am I going to do now? It wasn't like that at all. Um, if any of you have some, if any of you have watched any of the, of the moon shots, any of the, of the, um, you know, on YouTube or maybe some of us, uh, watch it on TV back when it actually happened, and they sent those Saturn rockets up to send uh, to, uh, people on to, to be on the moon. Uh, you'll know that the rockets were in several stages. It was glorious, wasn't it, watching it? Uh, I could just imagine what it must have been like to actually have physically been there. And, and you probably would have actually not only seen the rocket, uh, you would have probably felt it. And it would have been in your body, like a throbbing in your body and, and in your ears. It would have been very overwhelming, very glorious. But you know how long the first stage of the rocket had to last for and how to do its work? I only know this because I looked it up. I find it on the internet. It has to be true if you find it on the internet, right? Two minutes and 42 seconds. This huge, the biggest part of the whole rocket only has to last for two minutes and 42 seconds. And then if it's doing its job right at the end of two minutes and 42 seconds, the rocket turns off. (laughs) And the next rocket keeps going. And all of the language here in the text, and it's a bit more subtle in English, it's very obvious in the original language, is that God was doing a mighty work through Moses. And at every stage throughout that, he always knew that it was leading to the next stage. Not, this isn't replacement theology or anything like that. This is part of God's bigger plan. He always only has one people. But it was always... Every, Moses has all of these promises and prophecies of a greater prophet. Of a, all, of the, all of the sacrifices are pointing to a greater sacrifice. 
all of the all of these things it's always pointing to something more and that's this 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 language that it's not a failure part of it was to help to communicate to us that we can't follow rules and rituals but that it always had an end it always had a purpose it always had a next stage it always had the next thing in mind and that's why if you listen to it again listen to it within that perspective thinking of the saturn rocket and when they built the Saturn rocket, they built it so the first stage, they had, they had a plan that it would stop and that there'd be these other stages that would eventually take human beings to walk on the moon. Now, if the ministry of death, verse 7, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Holy Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness, a ministry that's going to make us right with God, make it right, must far exceed in its glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. Who looks at the final stage when you can be looking at the people on the moon? I mean, who looks at the first stage when you can be looking at the people on the moon? Because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will that which is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold or we are very open. The word bold can also mean completely and utterly open. Not like Moses who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. You see, God looks down from heaven at you and me and he knows that we cannot keep rules and rituals, and that if all we think, if we are part of those 9,999 religions that believe it's just some rule or some ritual, and if these ones don't work, if Islam's not working out, maybe we should try Buddhism, and if Buddhism isn't working out, there's a ten, like thousands of different types of Hinduism, maybe one of those work out, and if those don't work out, well, maybe we can make our own little bit of Hinduism, bit of Buddhism, bit of Judaism, bit of Islam, and put it all together, and he knows that they're all just not going to work, they're just not going to work, they're just not going to work, they're just not going to work. He knows that, he loves us, and so he's going to do something about it. He's going to do something about it. Now, um, in, in many ways, this is just a two-point sermon. The first one about the rules, and, and the second point is going to culminate in verse 18. And those of you who have been here other weeks, I think the book of Second Corinthians has more verses to memorize than just about any verse in the Bible. Uh, could you put it up on the stage? Could you read this out with me? We're going to say this quite a few times. I really encourage you, if you have never memorized Scripture, to start memorizing Scripture. And this is a great verse to memorize. We're going to read it up. I just want to read it first. This is the conclusion of this whole section. We're going to get to it. But could you read it out loud with me? And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And um, the, 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 Paul begins with this very powerful presentation of, in a sense, the bad news. And then he's going to switch a different to a different image. He sort of is like a comedian. He takes this image of the veil, and he's going to now all of a sudden turn this into something very powerful, and it's a very human experience to help us explain how it is. See, what God wants, he wants us to come to the point where we say, 
um, in a sense, that, that first person, the young man that I talked to, who said that there was no hope, that acknowledged that he could never keep the rules and the rituals, uh, that he could never, that there would always be things that he would do is wrong. In a sense, what God wants is to come to the point to say, which I tried to share with him, God, unless you do something real and effective, I have no hope. I need you to do something because I can't do it. I need you to show real and effective and powerful mercy and grace. I need mercy and grace. I need mercy and grace. And Paul continues to deepen this by developing the image of the blindfold. It's a very, very human problem, right? Uh, Human beings have multiple blindfolds. The surprising thing is that for most of us, it's very interesting. I mean, do we have blindfolds? What is it that supporters of Hillary Clinton say, those of you who are here who who like Clinton, what do you say about people who, who, if you find out that somebody, after a drink coffee, that somebody here might vote for Trump, you'd think to yourself, can't they see? Are they blind? Like, how can they look at that guy? They're not looking. If they were looking, they wouldn't vote for him. You Trump supporters, you quiet ones, you know who you are. What are you saying about people who are going to vote for Clinton? He's saying, are they blind? (laughs) Can't they see? Who on earth could possibly vote for her? I could do this with just about anything. Climate change deniers and climate change supporters. What did both of them say about the other? Can't they see? Are they wearing blindfolds? What do often some of you say in relationships? You know, you have your your girlfriend or whatever, and she starts to be interested in a particular guy, and you, you say to your girlfriends, somebody has to speak to her. Can't she see who that guy is? He's such a loser. Like, is she, what's, she's blind? So, right, we say this all the time. No, no Clinton supporter thinks that they might be blind. No Trump supporter thinks that they might be blind. But the surprising thing is, is that in the world, how do we deal with blindfolds? We think that if we can just take off our blindfolds and take off our blindfolds and take off our blindfolds, and maybe we'll take off the blindfolds, enough blindfolds that we can see God. The Bible says you got it all wrong. What we're going to see in the Bible here is that the Bible is going to tell us that the root blindfold that we wear is a blindfold that keeps us blind to God. And so one of the images of salvation is that one of the ways that God makes us right with himself is that he, I mean, he does it all by Jesus dying upon the cross. Later on in 2 Corinthians, it's going to say, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I'm going to explain that when we get to it in a couple of weeks. It's just one of the most powerful, compact, almost creedal statements of what Jesus does for us on the cross. And it's going to come up in two week, a couple of weeks, the end of Second Corinthians. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And part of that whole process is that God takes the blindfold off. That the root blindfold 
that undergirds the blindfolds we have about politics and the blindfolds that we have about relationships, that the root blindfold is the one that we wear in regard to our eternal destiny and our relationship with the Creator. Listen to verses 12 through 18. Since we have such a hope, that is, that there's God has some, some greater thing that he's going to do. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold or very open, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. He's just going to say that briefly, but he's going to get right back to this issue of a hardening and the blindfold or the veil is the same thing. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted. And that is because we continue time and time and time and time again. Einstein said that insanity is trying to do the same thing over and over and over, expecting different results. And the very, very heart of the religious spirit is to think that we can keep changing the rules and eventually we'll get the rules that will allow us to succeed. But the problem is, is that we can't keep the rules. So say that again, verse 14. But their minds were hardened. For this day when the Old Covenant... When they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ it is taken away. Is it taken away? Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, whenever the rules and the rituals are read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. But when one turns to the Lord, notice that it doesn't say when one takes off the veil. It's saying, I can't follow the rules. I can't look at your glory. I can't keep the rituals. I'm I'm bent and I'm twisted. And I I can't I can't fix it. And I still pray, but really, God, you're an unknown God. I don't really know you, but I, I sense there must be a God. There's something within me which is calling out. And and in the Greek tenses of this original text, it's a very interesting ambiguity. It's on one hand that God has put the blindfold, and the other hand it is that I have put the blindfold. And I, I can't use my hands, Father. And then you turn to the Lord, you call out and say, Father, I, God, I don't know everything there is to know about you. I only know a little bit about you. I, and I don't, I don't even, all I know, Father, is if you do not do something that I cannot do, if you do not show me mercy, if, if you don't do what I cannot do, I have no hope. Dear God, do what I cannot do. I trust and hope that you have mercy. When you turn to the Lord, even though our hands want to cling to the blindfold on our eyes, the Lord takes the blindfolds away. Because only God can do it. That's what the text is saying. Verse 16 again, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. God made us for himself, and our hearts are restless, and our hearts are burdened until our hearts rest in him. And we all, could you say this verse with me? If it's still up on the screen, say it with me. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. God's mighty act upon the cross is what makes us right with him. And as part of this wonderful act, it's not just when we're made right with God, it's an act of God by his grace and his mercy. 
If we were to become more like Jesus in our daily life, it's an act of God and his mercy and grace. And if we are eventually glorified in the new heaven and the new earth, the new created order, uh, that is all a work of grace and it's all a work of mercy. It's all grace. It's all mercy. It's all from God. We just are called to cooperate with it. And all of the language of transformation here, maybe you haven't seen this in a while, but sometimes we own, a, we own this Steinway piano and sometimes we bring it out here to, to, as part of the service. And it's, it's up, uh, up, you have to bring it down the ramp. And, and after the service, I'm, you know, I'm just so glad when Andrew and Patrick are here because they're these big strong guys and they can push this heavy Steinway piano down here around the corner, up the thing and in the wall and, and in through the door. And there's always a couple of two or three-year-olds who want to help. And they have to cooperate with that piano. They get in the way. It's trouble, right? And they, they come and they love to help. You say, you know, come on, Benjamin. You know, come on, you know, come on, uh, you know, come on, you know, just come on, help out. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they come and they put their little hands on it. But it's Andrew and Patrick pushing that big Steinway piano up that slot. You have to cooperate with All of the language in verse 18 is passive. God's doing it. It's fundamentally God. We cooperate. We're sub-creators, right? goes back to Genesis 1 and 2. We're sub-creators under him. We cooperate with him. We're led by him. We allow them to, him to lead. Say verse 18 with me again, please. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. You see, it, it, it tells us that the Lord takes this. You know, when here's this powerful thing. You know, brothers and sisters, why is it that we have these other lesser veils? Why is it that we can be blind to our own political biases, our scientific biases, our intellectual biases, our relational biases, and we can see it in others? And human beings in general have a sense that human health is being unveiled. And it's grounded here. This is the ground for us. When we're grounded in the gospel, when we're gripped by the gospel, when we understand that God saw us with perfect clarity and still his son came and died for us, that when we see that the fundamental act of of God in, in making us justified and right with him is that he would remove the veil, there is a courage for us and an impetus for us to remove the veils by which we live, the smaller veils by which we live that blind us to who we are and what we're doing to other people. There's this incentive in the gospel, a grounding in the gospel, a a, a push and a pull from the gospel to have the courage to look at the blindfolds by which we live and call out to God and say, God, I know there's blindfolds in this way. Take my blindfolds away. You've taken the big blindfold away in terms of my relationship with you. You want me to look at the world unveiled. Help me, Lord, to have that freedom of having an unveiled look. That's what it says here. Can you say verse 18 with me again? And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. 
And you might notice that there's different words for beholding in your different translations. That's because in the original language, there's this wonderful ambiguity around the word that's used. And in English, you can only use either the word beholding or the word reflecting. But in the original language, the same word can mean both. And it's such a powerful, powerful, grace-filled image because both images are completely and utterly true. There is nothing in me that shines. I am not a source of light, but I am made in the image of God. And by grace, as I am gripped by the gospel, the glory of God, that some of that beauty of holiness and salvation and grace reflects off of me and reflects off of you. And at the same time, it's also that I'm gripped, that I not looking to rules, I'm not looking to rituals as the the primary source of my identity and my hope and my comfort, but my hope and my comfort, my identity is gripped by the glory. How do they put it here? The glory of the Lord. What is the glory of the Lord? It's not a mystical experience. Read John's Gospel. This is very reminiscent of John's Gospel, which is filled with the images of glory. And if you read and you go right to the end, the glory of God is supremely made evident to human beings when we see Jesus dying upon the cross. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Almost at the beginning of John's Gospel, John the Baptist says to his disciples as he sees Jesus walking, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The lesson of Genesis and of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy of the sacrifice, of the Paschal sacrifice, of the peace sacrifices, the offerings, all of these types of things, all of the different aspects and images of what it means to be human and the sacrifices that are made and the rituals and the sacrifices that are made to be right with God. And John the Baptist, under prophetic inspiration, summarizes them all up when he looks at Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then John, the apostle, who is the writer of the gospel, who has listened to Jesus' teaching and understands that the glory of God is to be revealed and the glory of God is revealed most supremely as Jesus dies upon the cross. Not for his own sins, but for you and me. Not because he's surprised by human beings, but because he knows every human being deeply that no rule or ritual will ever make us right with him. It will only lead to condemnation and death. And what we need is real, powerful, historical, actual mercy and grace that can transform us and that we can be restored to God's intention to make a new heaven and a new earth where his creatures will live fully and restoredly bearing the image of God. And God in his mercy desires that as we walk with him, we will be changed from glory to glory And it begins with grace, it continues with grace, and it ends with grace. And brothers and sisters who have been gripped by the gospel, that is your destiny, that is your identity, and that is what the Bible says. Don't believe me, believe the Bible. Please stand. Can you say this verse with me one more time? And then I'll pray. And we all with unveiled face 
beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Father, we ask that you would, uh, if there's anyone here who has never given their life to Jesus, that uh, you would now meet with them in a very powerful way and help them to call out to, to Jesus for mercy. And Father, we thank you that you hear that call, that you always receive it, that you do not weigh their merits or our merits, but you pardon their offenses. We thank you that Jesus is that power that comes, Jesus Christ crucified and risen is that power that comes from you that makes us right with you. And Father, for, for all of us, make us disciples of Jesus who are gripped by the gospel, who, by being gripped, who gaze upon, Father, the glory of what you have done for us in the person of Jesus and his mighty work upon the cross and descent into death and hell and, and sin and burying our sin and rising triumphant over it all in his mighty resurrection, who will come again in glory, who will bring in not just a new heaven, but a new heaven and a new earth. Father, where we are once again, Father, the caretakers for this year created order. Father, Father, please in your mercy, make us disciples of Jesus who are gripped by the gospel. And as we're gripped by the gospel, that we are being convicted of our blindfolds and tearing them off as we live for your glory to boast in you and not to boast in ourselves. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.